Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I realize that the message title this morning is unusual. The Seed Picker's Sermon. Think, what on earth is he doing now? Paul was accused of being something when he was in Athens. They said that he was a babbler. What does this babbler want to say? And the term literally is seed picker. And I'll explain where they got that term in a few minutes. But this is the seed picker's sermon by their own accusation. This is what Paul has to say when given the opportunity about God. Paul speaks to an audience that admits its own ignorance in God, and Paul tells them about the God they don't know. What is God like? What does He do? Where does He live? You've had kids ask those questions. And if you're parents, you found them a little bit difficult at times to answer precisely. But maybe a better question, and it could really be the title of Paul's message, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 17 of Acts, is, What kind of God are you looking for? And I submit to you that the kind of God that people are looking for is the very one Paul was proclaiming. Now listen to this. This uh, comes from Danny Dutton. He's an eight-year-old. Lived in Chula Vista, California when he wrote this. This is his third grade assignment. Now he explains God as a third grader. Not bad, actually. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes these to replace the ones that die so that there will be enough people to take care of things here on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think it's because they're smaller and easier to make. (laughs) That way, he doesn't take up his valuable time teaching them to walk and talk. He can just leave that up to mothers and fathers. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on, as some people, like preachers and things, pray at other times beside bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to the radio or TV on account of all this. As He hears everything, not only prayers, there must be a terrible lot of noise going on in His ears, unless He has thought of a way to turn it off. God sees everything, and hears everything, and is everywhere, which keeps Him pretty busy. So, you shouldn't go wasting time by going over your parents' head and asking for something they said you can't have. (laughs) Atheists are people who don't believe in God. I don't think there are any in Chula Vista. At least, there aren't any who come to our church. (laughs) The Apostle Paul will address a crowd far outside any church. In fact, it, it is the pagan capital of the world. The cultural center of that part of the world at that time was Athens, Greece. And that's what we're studying in Acts chapter 17 this morning. He's speaking to a mixed audience. Some were Jews. Others were Gentile worshipers. Others were passerby in the marketplace. And others were philosophers. And they heard what Paul said, and they reacted to what he said. And their reaction is what brought the invitation for him to come and speak further. And the invitation 
is what Paul gave the presentation to. So we're going to look at the invitation to speak and then the presentation, what he said. Now, it's obvious that we're revisiting this chapter because we turned to it last week. But we skimmed over it so quickly. And yet, what we're about to read in verse 24 through 31 are so central in understanding the very one this series is crafted around. If we are to understand Paul, we need to grasp what he says here. Because we have here the theology of Paul in a concise set of statements. It's what Paul believed about God. The kind of God that Athens needed to hear. And one thing you find out about Paul is the boy loved to preach, didn't he? Remember he said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Some of us would say, woe is me if I have to preach the gospel. Not Paul. He was always ready. And it was amazing how confident he was. Not only that, but with this confidence is a strong theology. When Paul preached a sermon, he preached a sermon. He didn't preach a sermonette. I mean, he gave it to them full bore, full strength, even here in Athens. Well, let's go back to verse 17 and look at this invitation. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. You'll notice that they are reacting to Paul's reasoning with them. He's bringing them through logical thought, these Athenian thinkers reasoning with them, and they have a reaction to that. Now, we read who they are, and we briefly touched on them last week. There are Epicureans, and there are Stoics. And to refresh your memory, the Epicureans were the humanists. They believed that we are here by chance. We were not created. But rather, a random collision of particles occurred, and voila, We are here. They believe there is no afterlife. Once you die, it ends it all. Then there are the Stoics who believe that God and His creation are one and the same. They taught that there is a single world soul so that it's a seamless entity. God and His creation are the same. They're pantheistic. So Paul is speaking to a group of people. They don't even believe the same things. They're very confused and very contradictory, which is interesting to me. Paul addresses a city that has had thousands of years of collected wisdom and knowledge, and they're so in the dark about who they are and what's going to happen after they die. It reminds me of the couple, a very simple couple. They had never flown an airplane in their lives, been on an airplane. It was their first flight across the Atlantic. In mid-flight, they hear a loud thud Everybody on board is shaken. Pilot gets on the intercom and says, Ladies and gentlemen, one of our three engines just went out. But don't worry. We're going to arrive safely. We can make it on two engines just fine, but we're going to be an hour late. A little while later in the flight, another loud thud was heard. 
Pilot gets on the intercom and says, Ladies and gentlemen, we just lost number two engine. But don't worry. We have every expectation that we're going to arrive safely. However, we're going to be three hours late. That simple man turns to his simple wife and he says, If that third engine goes out, we're going to be up here all night. That's sort of the Athenian mentality. You know, they're just sort of going around in circles of thought, never really landing on anything. Nothing solid to live by. So Paul is speaking to a mixed crowd, thousands of years of collected thought and wisdom, but still in the dark. Now, in this reaction, there's an accusation. The Epicurean, verse 18, and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, that's where I got the title for this message. Because the term babbler is a Greek word, spermalagas, and it literally means a seed picker. It was a slang word. If you lived in Athens 2,000 years ago, you would have heard of it. And it referred to a bird, a scavenger bird, who would pick up seeds, scraps, along the road. They'd follow the food carts around the city and pick up whatever scraps were there. A scavenger bird, a seed picker, a gutter snipe, some called it. And the people in Athens used this very term to refer to people who had no original thought of their own, but picked up bits of knowledge, wisdom, and philosophy from a variety of sources and sort of combined it and made their own hybrid theology or their own hybrid philosophy. So this was really... Uh, a cut on Paul. They're saying, look at this amateur philosopher. He's just a seed picker. What does he want to say? And so they invite him. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. That's the invitation And Paul seizes on the invitation. He's going to preach a sermon about God. Now, I'll tell you why I'm going over this a second time. First of all, last week we we just had time to barely read this message. And number two, I see an interesting parallel between Athens of Paul's day and the United States of America in our day. I know there are two different cultures. I know that they're years apart. I know that Athens was a pre-Christian culture, and I understand that America is now a post-Christian culture. But there are some similarities between ancient Athens and modern America. For instance, like us, they lived in an advanced culture for their time. They lived in a refined civilization filled with art and beauty, like we do. They, like us, promoted intellectualism. That knowledge would be gained through research and experience. And like us, they promoted free speech, open dialogue, exchanging thoughts. And they, like us, had a philosophy of the origin of the universe brought about by randomness rather than special creation or intelligent design. And that is, by and large, the philosophical thought that pervades our country. And they, like us, had lots of idols. 
And you say, I followed you all the way till that last part. We don't have idols. You mentioned last week, Skip, that there were 30,000 statues and idols, all these different gods. Well, yes, it's true. We don't call our idols by the same names. But the worship is very similar. For instance, we don't say we worship mammon. But we have a culture that worships materialism, wealth, exonerates greed. We don't say we worship Aphrodite, but we have a culture largely sold out to the worship of the human body and sexual exploitation. We don't say we worship Dionysius anymore, but drugs and alcohol have become a worship system for many who are now caught up in it. We don't say we worship Athena like they did in Athens, and the city was named after her, but we put art and beauty on a pedestal as the ultimate virtue in many respects. So there are some similarities. Therefore, to understand what this preacher said about God in that kind of a culture is very important. Because I wonder, I don't know exactly what you believe about God. I can only assume, but I don't know what individually each of you is ready to say to a culture like ours about the God you believe in. So I find it interesting to find out the confident expression that Paul has in this city of Athens. Well, he begins in verse 24, outlining who God is. But remember, he begins with their own culture. He says, you know, I was cruising around town. And you know that statue down at the corner of Zeus and Pericles? Uh, it says, to the unknown God. He starts there. There's a God that even you, smart people of Athens, you don't know. But guess what, Paul would say, I know him. And I'm going to tell you all about the one you don't know. So he had their attention in claiming to know their unknown God. And now he gives them a dose of good theology. By the way, John Stott said something very interesting. He said... People today, most people don't reject the gospel because they perceive it to be untrue, but because they perceive it to be trivial. That is, they look at people who say what they believe in, but it's not big enough. We need a bigger gospel. And here's a bigger gospel. Here's what Paul knew about God. First of all, he would say God is the creator of everything. Look at the first verse, verse 24 of our section. God, Theos, God, who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. What a lofty view of God he presents. Creator, made everything, Lord of everything. Now, in that crowd were Epicureans. Remember, their belief is that we are the product of a random collision of particles. In that audience were a group of Stoics who said that God is not separate and distinct from His creation. It's all one and the same. And you've got to think that these philosophers want to protect their jobs. They're not interested in dialoguing with people so as to change what they believe. 
Oh, they might say, we're open to everyone and everything, but they're not going to change their school of thought. They want to protect it because that's their job. That's their livelihood. And it's very similar to modern philosophies. Have you ever wondered, why is it that so many people with bright minds and advanced educations are willing to stake their whole life and say, we evolved Especially when there are so many scientists in the advanced scientific community that say the evidence points in the other direction, intelligent design. And I've often wondered, why is it that these bright minds are still willing to say we evolved over a period of time? Now, there's a lot of reasons for it, and I'm not going to tell you all of them, but I want to give you two of them. There's two reasons. One's a social reason. One's a moral reason. Here's the social reason. Most intelligent people believe in evolution because they believe that most intelligent people believe in evolution. Isn't that crazy? They know that if they are to, in the scientific community, say, I am open to intelligent design, that they will be relegated to the corner of being some dummy, some backwards idiot. It's just not a good thing to say. It's better to say, no, we have advanced in our knowledge and we know that God no longer exists. There can be no creation. There has to be evolution. That's the social reason. Second is the moral reason. Now think about it. Once a bright mind says, I am open to the possibility of special creation or intelligent design, that means I have to be open to a creator being there. And if there's a creator being there, that means that I, as a creature, am accountable ultimately to that creator. And I don't want that. Biochemist Michael Behe, we had him here a few years ago, states, Many people, including many important and well-respected scientists, just don't want there to be anything beyond nature. And I've had lots of conversation with folks who say, I just can't believe in this creation stuff for intellectual reasons. It's often a smoke and mirrors game that means I don't want to do it for moral reasons. Because then I have to all of a sudden stand before that creator one day who will judge my life. And so it says in Psalm 14, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It doesn't mean intellectual fool. It means a moral fool. And it's literally the fool has said in his heart, no God. Not there is no God, not I'm not open to the possibility of the existence of God, but simply no God for me. That's a moral reason. Paul insists, and he begins with this, that God has plainly revealed himself by what we see around us. God who made everything. In in, um, Romans chapter 1, same apostle writes, Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly, plainly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. See, for Paul, it was this simple. It's the law of cause and effect. Common sense dictates that every effect must have a cause. And you can't have a chain of causes. You have to ultimately have an uncaused first cause. Follow me? 
There has to be something there. You can't keep going infinitely regressing. So it's unreasonable to assume that the universe began by some random chance without an outside cause. It's not smart thinking to think that uh, living matter can replicate itself and grow in more complexity by mutation only. I love what cosmologist Alan Sandage said, quote, How is it that inanimate matter can organize itself to contemplate itself? Duh! That's not reasonable. And Paul, if you know philosophy, you know what he's doing here. This is the cosmological and teleological argument for the existence of God. And he begins there. He begins there. There's an old axiom that says, wherever there is a thing, there must have been a preceding thought. And wherever there is a thought, there must have been a thinker to think that thought. So we look at this building. This building represents thought. And you might ask, what were they thinking? (laughs) They were originally thinking of a sports facility. That's why there's not cement under here. There's asphalt. Did you know that? Under the carpet. Because... It was a better playing surface. There was a tennis court in here at one time. Then there were soccer arrangements. But then later on, other thoughts developed toward this building when it was purchased. Hey, let's make it a church. And so other things were added to it. So if you look at a thing and you think there's thought behind it, there's design, there has to be a thinker. If I'm walking through the desert and I find an arrowhead, I could say... Well, it's obvious that this arrowhead was formed after a billion years of um, different processes that happened and explosions and water and collisions and this oozed out of the ground. Or you could say, boy, you got two sides that are symmetrically shaped and they're evenly honed and there's a point at one end. It looks like some thinker thought, I'm going to use this to hunt an animal. Well, that same course of thinking that we would use for a building or an arrowhead... Use it for your own human body. You've got 30 trillion cells in it, more complex than an arrowhead or a building. What kind of complex thought went into that thing, and who is that designer, thinker, who made that? So that's where Paul begins, God who made the world and everything in it. The second thing he says about God, not only is he creator, but he's the sustainer of it all. Verse 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Don't you think it's ludicrous to think that the one who sustains the whole world needs to be sustained himself? Okay, now when Paul was speaking this, there were 30,000 gods and goddesses throughout the city. Statues. Each of them had to be maintained by somebody. It was somebody's job to polish the statue. Or if a, a finger fallen off, to put it back on. Or to put some kind of wax where there was marble. You had to maintain those things. And so Paul is saying, this isn't God. God is creator and God is sustainer of everything. Now, here's the ancient view, by the way, in case you don't know. The ancient view of crafting a statue was more than a representation. The idea is that the very deity that that representation is of, that deity, that God inhabits the statue, identifies with it. 
So that whatever happens around the statue, the God sort of picks up on the vibes. So if there's a ceremony or if there's prayer given in front of that icon, that statue, the God behind it, you know, gets into it, can sense that. That's why in Babylon and Egypt, they would actually dress up their gods and goddesses with little outfits, like little dolls. And uh, they would put food in front of the statues, thinking that this this image, this God, is actually going to derive energy from the food that I put out there. Now, how utterly ridiculous is that? I mean, what good is a God that you make and that you have to take care of? Busy day today, man. I had to take care of my gods. Yeah, Got to get them up in the morning. Got to feed them breakfast. Got to dress them for school. Go, they go to God's school. They come back and they protect me. What good is that? That's Paul's thinking. The Lord God said in Psalm 50, I have no need of a bull from your altar or stalls or goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. For I know every bird in the mountains and creatures in the field, for they are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. So it's a very different God, this unknown God, than all of the gods and goddesses in the Greek pantheon. He's the creator. He is the sustainer of all life. And yet, every now and then, it seems like even some Christian ministries want to portray God as if we sustain Him rather than He sustains us. The way some people beg for funds on television. You know, if you don't send in your check this week, God's going out of business. And it's your fault. So we start feeling really guilty, like, man, i got to fund God. As if God has no resources on His own to take care of His work upon the earth. Not that we shouldn't be involved, but to place that kind of pressure that we sustain God is not right. Listen, I'm glad that the very one who sustains all life has me in his hands. And that God never says, oops. Aren't you glad that God doesn't look at your life and go, oh, I forgot about the time change. (laughs) Or, oops, I forgot all about that you needed that. God has it perfectly in control. I love the story about a little boy. He was on an airplane visiting his grandparents. You know, he had one of those tags. They put him on the airlines. He was visiting grandma and grandpa. It happened to be that next to him was sitting a seminary professor. Seminary professor, as the plane took off, noticed the little boy was reading a Sunday school lesson. So he thought, I'm going to have a little fun with the boy. So he said, young man, if you can tell me one thing God can do, I'll give you a Shiny red apple. The little boy sort of looked at the guy and said, Hey, you can tell me one thing God can't do. I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. I think the little boy had a right. God can do anything because of who he is. He is the God who is the creator. He's the God who is the sustainer. And Paul says something else to this crowd. God is the ruler. The ruler of all nations. Verse 26 And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times or just 
the right time for them to live on this earth. And the boundaries of their dwellings, where they are born. So that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though Paul says He is not far from each one of us. So follow his thought. God, Theos, that which is unknown to you, the one that I know, He's the creator of everything. Not only that, but He keeps everything running. He sustains it. We don't sustain Him. Not only that, but He's the ruler of all nations and has it all advanced in His mind. Who will live where, when? You remember Daniel the prophet who stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian monarch? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream one night that really bugged him. Remember the dream? It was a statue. head was of gold. The chest and arms were of silver. The belly and thighs were of brass and then legs of iron. He didn't know what that meant. Daniel said, I'll tell you what that means. You're the head of gold. And he thought, yeah. He said, the God of heaven has allowed you to be the ruler over all the earth. God gave you that privilege. God gave you that rulership, Nebuchadnezzar. But... After you will arise an inferior kingdom, and after that another kingdom, and another kingdom. And he said, the God that gave you the Babylonian empire is going to take away your empire and give it to somebody else, and history will go on. He showed that God is the ruler of all history and all nations. That's Paul's point. And notice what he says in verse 26. He is made from one blood, that is one man's blood, that is Adam, the progenitor of the human race, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Understand what Paul is saying to these Athenians. He's saying God the creator and sustainer and ruler created everyone equal. We all have the same origin. We're all from one man's blood, Adam. So that all men on earth are created equal. Now I'll tell you why this is important. Because the men of Athens didn't believe that. The men of Athens didn't believe men were created equal. They thought the Greeks were special. They were better. In fact, do you know what the Greeks called anybody who was a non-Greek? A barbarian. That was their term. Barbaros is a Greek word. And the word barbaros comes from what they perceived the sound of sheep to be like. What do sheep do? Bah, bah. So a barbarian is somebody who speaks sheep talk. Bar, 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 bar. So Paul strikes at the very heart of Athenian pride when he says, from one man's blood, God put everybody on this earth and we're all the same. And why did he do that? He says in verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord. So when God placed people in that environment at the right time, he also put within every man that desire to be unsatisfied until they find God, their creator. You've heard that old statement that says God put a a God-shaped void or vacuum in the heart of every man. That actually comes from a French philosopher, Blaise Pascal. God has placed a God-shaped vacuum in every life. Why? So that when we're born, we'd realize, I'm not fulfilled until I have a relationship with God. God designed you that way. But what happened is this search turned to, in Paul's words, a groping. That is, a fumbling in the darkness. Picture a blind man trying to feel his way through a room. That's the idea. 
God placed that desire to know him, but we can't find him because we're groping in the dark, because we've been blinded by sin. The search has turned to a grope. And we will be unsatisfied until we meet up with God. Though Paul says, he's not far from any of us. So next time somebody says, well, I'm an agnostic. I really don't know if there's a God, but I'm searching for God. Tell them, God isn't lost. He's not far from any of us. In fact, the truth is, sir or madam, God is searching for you. He's trying to get a hold of you. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He wants you to open it up. As St. Augustine used to say, You have made us for thyself, and we are restless until we find our rest in thee. That's Paul's point. Creator, sustainer, ruler. The fourth thing he says about God is God is the Father of all mankind. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now here's Paul's point. Don't think that Paul is saying, well, we're all brothers and sisters under the universal fatherhood of God. So if you believe in Jesus, cool. If you believe in Zeus, okay. Doesn't matter who you follow because we're all brothers and sisters. He's not teaching that. He's saying that even your own poets have acknowledged God in creation. And that we are all brothers and sisters in a creative sense, not a redemptive sense. Because we all come from one man's blood created by God, Adam. God's our father of everything created. But now once you come to Jesus Christ, then you have a relationship with one another as brother and sister for redemptive reasons. God becomes your heavenly father in a relational sense. So Paul's point is simply this. Because he says, don't think that, that, that God can be reduced to gold, silver, or stone, something devised by art. If God is the creator and sustainer of all, if he created man, for man to then create an image and say, this image is God, is a, a degradation, an insult to that God. Make sense? Because anything you make is always less than you. You go and you make a little statue. Go, this is my God. How can it be your God? It's less than you. You made it. So if God made man in his image, though now marred, makes a statue and says, this statue is God, what an insult that is. You can't reduce God to that. Because God is creator, sustainer, ruler, father of all mankind created in his image. For a man to make an idol is an insult to God. Fifth and finally, he says, God is the judge. Now he wraps it up. Verse 30, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. He said it. He used the R word. The word that people today in modern churches don't even like to use. Repentance. And notice how plain this is. God not suggests, He commands. All men, not a few men, not just people who live in the West, 
all men everywhere, not just those who live in Albuquerque or the United States, to repent. Because, verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this, but Paul ends his message with the same topic he begins it. He begins with the ignorance of the men of Athens. Hey, there's this God, the unknown God. You're ignorant of who he is. Let me tell you about him. He begins with their ignorance, and he ends mentioning that same topic. These times of ignorance, God has overlooked. But that was then. This is now. And right here, right now, God is commanding all men everywhere to turn in their minds and in their lives from all that to the living God that has revealed himself in creation, sustains nature, rules the nations, etc., and will ultimately judge the world. So, men of Athens, you can't plead ignorance any longer. There's a point at which your agnosticism is simply a smoke and mirrors way to dodge the bullet of conviction. You have to make a choice, and the choice is repentance. Now, I think that if the city of Athens would have had a slogan back then, it would read, How great is man! How great is man! Because they were the ultimate humanists. They believed in the power, the untapped power of the individual. The 5th century B.C. philosopher Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. So their slogan would be, how great is man. Here comes Paul the Apostle. And he say, preach us a sermon. And he goes, okay, how great is God? The one you don't know, but you could if you repent. In 1715, King Louis XIV of France died. He had reigned that country for 72 long years. King Louis XIV gave himself the title The Great. So he liked to be called King Louis the Great. That's what he demanded people call him. You may remember he was the one who made the famous statement, I am the state. And his court was the most magnificent, opulent court in all of Europe. Well, when he died, his funeral was also very lavish. He was buried in a golden casket. And the golden casket was brought into a great cathedral, and orders were given that at the funeral, the cathedral was to be dimly lit with only a solid, single candle over that golden casket to reflect how great is that man. Well, when the preacher got up to preach his message, the cathedral was full of people. The preacher's name was Bishop Messilon. And he stood up and he reached down and he snuffed out the candle. And he said, only God is great. Of course, he said that after the king was dead, it was probably safe at that point. (laughs) But here's Paul in Athens, a town that hailed the greatness of Alexander the Great, who said, we have a pantheon of great gods, who hailed Plato and Socrates and Aristotle as being great men. And Paul stood up and would say, only God is great. What kind of God are you looking for? I tell you, the only God that's worth anything is one who can create all the world. 
The only God worth anything is the one who can sustain all of life and doesn't need to be sustained or maintained by us. The only God I think you really want is the one who rules over all of the nations sovereignly, who is the father of all mankind and who will ultimately judge and bring rightness to a world that has gone wrong. I opened up with Danny Dutton and what he said about God, but I didn't read his whole little paper. He concluded by saying this, If you don't believe in God, besides being an atheist, you'll be very lonely. Because your parents can't go everywhere with you like to camp. But God can. It's good to know that He's around when you're scared of the dark or when you can't swim very good and you get thrown in the deep end by the real big kids. Not bad advice. Clear thinking for an eight-year-old. You get thrown in the deep end. God's there. I don't know what, what you're swimming in this week. You might find yourself in deep waters. What kind of a God do you want? I want the kind that Paul preached. This only true and living God. He can sustain anything you're going through. Heavenly Father... We're so thankful for an example at the very beginning of Christianity. An example of a man of conviction who had a very clear, lofty view of a great and awesome God. Maybe it is true, Lord, that people reject Christianity not because they perceive it to be untrue, but rather trivial. I pray that our lives would exemplify, exhibit, and preach this great God and that we'd never be ashamed to clearly, boldly, and confidently preach you in this uncertain world that is so similar to that ancient one. And I pray for anyone here this morning who hasn't yet turned in repentance to you, Lord, through Jesus Christ, that that would happen today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.